going on, Valley family? It is so great to be here with you. My name is Stephen Francis, and I am back for another week of the series of Blessed Life. Guys, throughout this series, we've been focusing on the Sermon of the Mount, one of Jesus's most powerful teachings in his entire three years of ministry. And we've been focusing on not only what he's teaching, but how we can best apply the things that he's talking about so that we can live true, happy lives. I'm super excited about today's message, and we have notes for today's message, and I want to encourage you to follow along with us in the notes, but we are no longer using the app. We are now using our website, valleyny.cc, so if you want to follow along with today's notes, you can go ahead and do that, and listen, another thing I was thinking about before uh, we were going to start today's message is that, man, you know, so much has transpired this year in our lives with the pandemic and other issues that have sparked. And it can cause for us to kind of forget how to have fun, kind of forget how to have a good time. So before we start today's message, I want to do something really fun today. It's going to be interactive, and that's why I'm so grateful for all of the Valley family that are watching wherever you are. And I want to encourage you, wherever you're watching right now, to participate with me in this. In fact, you can put it in the chat if you want to. See, I had this game that I played four years ago here at Valley Christian Church for a sermon. I want to bring it back. And it's inspired by a game that I used to play on my phone called Name That Brand. But instead of us naming the brand today, I want you to react to the brand. Meaning, if you like this brand, if you like what this represents, I want you to cheer. I want you to make some noise, celebrate it. And if you're on the chat, I want you to put yay. I love that. Whatever you prefer. And if you don't like it, you can say boo. You can hiss if you want to. Do the same on the chat. And if you're indifferent. If you don't care about this particular brand, it's whatever to you, you could just say, eh, I don't know. I don't know. It's fine. If, if that's your thing, that's cool, but it's not really for me. Again, you could put eh in the chat. Let's have some fun, all right? So the first logo that I want to look at is this one right here. Who loves them some McDonald's? Make some noise in this room. <laughs> Listen, I've said it before, and I will say it again here on this stage. There is nothing more perfect and anointed than a McDonald's fry. It is perfect. You can get mad at me if you want to. You can't beat a McDonald's fry. But we have another one. Let's look at this next one right here. Who here loves some Apple products? Who here loves an iPhone? Make some noise for me. Let me know where you're at. Yeah. Listen, I'm a big iPhone user. I have all Apple products. It's great. All right. Let's do one more. Look at this one. Who's a fan of the New York Giants in this place? Make some noise for me. <laughs> Listen, this is all opinion, but that is the exact answer you need to have for the New York Giants, okay? And I definitely say that as a Patriots fan. You can get mad at me if you want to, okay? One more. I want to show you. What's your thoughts on this here? I love what this logo represents. I love, and I wouldn't call it a brand, but I love what this represents. Because this symbol, which at one time was supposed to be a message of death, is now a symbol that we use for hope, for resurrection, for love. 
But what's so interesting is that although many of us that are watching right now view this symbol as a symbol of hope and love and resurrection, there are so many other people that when they see a symbol like this, they think of the people associated with it and they think of bigotry. They think of oppression. They think of hate. And Christianity, our faith is so much bigger than a type of restaurant or a preferred mobile service. Yet at the same time, we need to ask ourselves, what can we do that can cause for people to see the goodness of God, the love of Jesus, the way that we see today when we think of symbols like this? Today's message is all about that. Like I mentioned before, we're in this series right now called The Blessed Life, and we've been focusing on the words of Jesus during the Sermon on the Mount. And we've covered some big subjects. In fact, if you were with us last week, we talked about blessed are the peacemakers. And I actually believe that this is like a part two to what it is that we talked about last week. And today we're going to pick up where Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter five, starting at verse 13. He says this, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your father in heaven. It's important that we not just read these words, but we read these in an exegetical way. What does Jesus mean when he tells the audience at this time that they are salt and light? Salt was so important back then. Salt was used as a preservative for meat because they didn't have refrigerators. They didn't have freezers back then. So that was their way of keeping food from spoiling. It was used as an enhancer of food, a seasoning, the same way that we use it today. Salt was so important in this time period that it was even used as a form of currency. You can barter with salt, which means the more salty you were, if you will, sometimes that indicated how much wealth that you had. Light was also important because light like it is today is required for us to do anything effectively. And they didn't have electricity the same way that they had electricity today. The, the same way we have electricity today, which means whenever there was no sun, whenever there was no light, there was no vision. There was no heat to keep people warm. Light was vital back then, more than we can comprehend today. And so was salt. So when Jesus is saying in this passage that we are salt, that we are light, he's saying this, and this is my first point, to be salt and light is to have value and influence. Jesus is telling us that we have value and it's value that you did not earn. This value is important for you to know because we live in a world right now that is trying to redefine constantly where your value comes from. You might be in here today and feel like your value will come when you have a specific type of relationship. 
when you have a specific credit score or a type of job, you might have heard or, or felt value that was affected because of something that a family member said to you because of what they did to you. But the value that Jesus is offering to each and every one of us today is this. That the value that we have comes from him. He calls us salt and light. He calls us valuable. And right now our culture is filled with those that are struggling to find value and many that are in pain because they can't find it. A recent article has just revealed that due to the issues with the pandemic, there are a quarter of young adults in America that have contemplated suicide. That substance abuse and other types of addictions are at an all time high on top of unemployment homelessness, people are looking for value and worth in the midst of a world where everything is being redefined. And Jesus is saying that even if you don't have it the way that you want it, even if your life isn't the way that it is, even if your kids don't behave, even if you're not able to have children, even if you're not the weight that you want to be, even if you're not at the economic place you'd like to be, it does not change the fact that you have intrinsic worth and value in Jesus. So can I encourage anybody in here today that maybe you have felt suicidal, that maybe you have felt like that life is not worth living. Do not see yourself differently than how God sees you today. Do not see yourself with any less value than the creator of the universe sees you. Because he not only sees that you have value, he sees that you are essential. That you not being present is you not being able to help people around you that need you right now. So the question that we also need to ask then is if we are essential, that if we are valuable, that if we are influential, how can we use this influence that God has given us in order to make an impact in the world that we're living? This world is looking for influence. This world is looking for value. How do we show it? How do we be the salt and light? I think the most important way that we can do that is to look at the life of Jesus. Because that's exactly what Jesus exemplified. Three ways today that I believe Jesus was influential in being salt and light here on this earth that has caused for a ripple effect for good ever since then. And all of these, unsurprisingly, has to do with the way that he loved people. The first is this, is that Jesus's love for God was the foundation for his love for people. I have a mentor that likes to say this, that the kingdom of God must first reign in you if you want it to reign through you. And if I can put that in the context of what we're talking about today, I believe that the love of God must first be strong within us if we want to pour it out to those around us. And we don't really pay attention to how significant this is in the life of Jesus. We just assume because he's God or the son of God that he just had this down packed. But I think there's an important part of Jesus's life that truly impacts the rest of his ministry. And we see that in Matthew chapter four. Because in Matthew chapter four, right after Jesus was baptized and God said that he is his son, that he is well pleased. It says that the Holy Spirit led him into the wilderness where he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. 
And we don't necessarily talk about fasting a lot in our culture today, but fasting, spiritual fasting, biblical fasting, was often the withholding of food primarily. There's other ways you could do it, but primarily through food as a way to grow in spiritual intensity. It was the act of Jesus saying, listen, food is important. Food is vital. I need it to survive. But even more than that, God, I need you. You are enough for me. You are better than anything I could ever physically consume. And after he fasted for those days and even being tempted by Satan, he started his ministry. And what made it so powerful when you look at the life of Jesus wasn't just the fact that he was able to do incredible miracles and have deep uh, intellectual teachings. But it was the fact that Jesus was constantly so selfless. He didn't compromise self-care, yet at the same time, he was so selfless in the way that he looked out for other people. And this is so contradicting to the way that we live our lives. Because in our lives today, everything is set up where we have to look out for ourselves and the people that we care about. No one else is going to provide for my family the way that I can. No one else is going to get me a great career the way that I can. No one else is going to make a name for myself the way that I can. That's just the way this world works. If you want to live comfortably, if you want to be successful, you're going to have to do everything that you can do to get to the top. And in the hustle of trying to be the best that I can be, of trying to make sure that I'm comfortable and that the people that I love are taken care of, I will easily overlook people around me that are in need of a hand, that are in need of love. In fact, I was thinking about this the other day. I remember a mentor told me this a while back ago, same mentor that told me the previous quote. He said, Stephen, if, you're, if, if Jesus were to answer all of your prayer requests tomorrow morning, would the world be changed for the better or just your life? And at that time, I had to own up that all of my prayers are just simply about me and mine. That I wasn't thinking about those that were hungry. That I wasn't thinking about those that were sick. That I wasn't thinking about anybody or anything that didn't have an intrinsic benefit to me. Yet at the same time, Jesus was for everybody. It didn't matter if you were a disciple. It didn't matter if you were an unbeliever. It didn't matter if you were a woman or a man. It didn't matter if you were young or old, sick, healthy. It didn't matter if, if you were a Jew. It didn't matter if you were a non-Jew. And the same is true today. It doesn't even matter if you are a New York Jets fan in here today. There is a God that loves you and is for you no matter what. And we see Jesus make this command before he goes on uh, uh, his, his ultimate mission of dying on the cross for our sins. He says this in John 13, talking to his disciples, a new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. What is he saying here? You must love one another selflessly. Because that's the way that Jesus loved people. It changes the entire perspective of how life should be lived. 
and the effects of it go way past just the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. We know through history that after Jesus ascended into heaven, something that was very uh, popular in the Greco-Roman Empire that Jesus existed in was that if there was an unwanted pregnancy, if there was a baby that maybe had a defect or wasn't the right gender that the parents wanted, it was common practice to just let that child just die on the streets. And it was early Christians that selflessly saw what was happening and said, we can't do this any longer. And they began to adopt these children and start what now we know as foster care. Orphanages. Fast forward. We see ministries like the Salvation Army and the American Red Cross that says, listen, there are people that are marginalized. There are people that need help and resources, and we need to do whatever we can to help them. Fast forward again, we see the civil rights movement here in our country where many Christian leaders said that, no, all men are created equal. We are all made in the image of God and we must stand up for justice and for the right for all people to be treated the way God would have us to treat them. Fast forward again, we have ministries today, big ones like Preemptive Love and A21 that stands for people that are in war-torn areas and are being in danger of human trafficking. We have people locally, the, the Bread of Life, the Unshattered, the Walter Hoving Home. We have ministries that we participate with here at the church, Souls for Souls and Operation Christmas Child, all with the aim of looking out for people that need help, getting our eyes off ourselves so that other people can see the love of God. And you know, I can keep going on about this, but... I'm going to allow another preacher to step up and say something about this issue that I believe is so powerful. Many of you guys know this man as Bono. He's the lead singer for a group called U2. Shout out to our lead pastor, Dr. Greg, one of their biggest fans. And I just want you to hear his words when he talks about the importance of this, especially for us as Christians. Check this out. Say that was the poetry and the righteous anger of the black church that was such an inspiration to me a very white, almost pink Irish man <laughs> growing up in Dublin. This is true religion. True religion will not let us fall asleep in the comfort of our freedom. Love thy neighbor is not a piece of advice, it's a command. Because where you live should not decide whether you live or whether you die. And to those in the church who still sit in judgment on the AIDS emergency, let me climb into the pulpit for just one moment. Because whatever thoughts we have about God, who He is, or even if God exists, most will agree that God has a special place for the poor. The poor are where God lives. God is in the slums, in the cardboard boxes where the poor play house. God is where the opportunity is lost and lives are shattered. God is with the mother who has infected her child with a virus that will take both their lives. God is under the rubble in the cries we hear during wartime. God, my friends, is with the poor and God is with us if we are with them. Powerful. Absolutely powerful. You know, he's not just saying 
uh, something that's random. He's actually quoting what scripture says. Scripture talks about this in Matthew 25. Jesus does a parable talking about sheep and goats and he rewards one group of individuals because when they were hungry, they were fed. Uh, well, he says, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was lost, you, you found me. When I was in prison, you visited me. He says several powerful statements of how people showed love to him. And the response from the people was, Lord, when did we ever see you in these situations? And he says this in Matthew 25, verse 40, the king, this is Jesus, will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you do for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. People will see God's love when we love those selflessly that benefit us in no way except for the benefit of them seeing the love of God. But that's just the first thing. You know, the second way that I believe that we can make an influence is that we need to love people over principles. One of the most dynamic things about Jesus was that Jesus was so clear on what his convictions were, on what it meant to be good on what it meant to be righteous. And his standards for goodness, his standards for morality were so high that there are multiple accounts in scripture where someone heard what he said, whether a disciple or another listener, and responded, if this is what it means to be good, who can be good? Who could achieve this level of righteousness? This is impossible. And Jesus responded in his own way, I know. Nobody can except for me. And I'm going to be the one that steps in the gap between you and God and be the person that through my goodness, through my sacrifice, you will now be considered righteous. Not because of what you have done, but because of the salvation that I've given you. And what's so ironic is that even though I as a Christian am very aware that I do not have the goodness, that I do not have the morality to make myself considered good in the eyes of the Lord, I will still judge people based off of their moral choices. I will still throw judgment on those that aren't Christians or they are Christians, but sometimes they'll have a bad sin habit or some type of moment of, of moral failure. I'll cast my nose on them. I'll look down on those individuals as if I saved myself. Can I just encourage every person in here with this truth? You are not perfect whether you've never done anything criminal or not, whether you've never looked at something that you shouldn't have online or did something to somebody or not, you are not perfect. And God knows that. So we should love one another despite our imperfections. And this is what's so interesting in our culture because we have two competing voices that one says, hey, listen, you need to be your authentic self. You need to be hashtag no filter. You need to love your imperfections. Yet another voice is saying that if people don't like what they see, 
That if people don't like the things that you've said, the things that you've done, your, the moments of failure that you've had, you could be in danger of eternal judgment, a.k.a. canceled. Cancel culture is so strong. And for anyone that doesn't know what cancel culture is, it is the act of something coming up. Maybe it was a tweet. Maybe it was a recent action. Maybe it was an account that somebody said about you that you did. And it doesn't matter how long ago it was. It doesn't matter how much you changed since then. The court of public opinion will cast judgment to let you know whether people should ever associate with you ever again. And let me be clear, there are some criminal things, there are some unrepented things that there needs to be judgment and proper justice taken care of in those situations. But the idea of saying that somebody is not worthy of redemption is one of the most unbiblical, ungodly things that we could ever do. But I also have to admit that this is a very difficult thing for us to live according to. Because sometimes, according to our own judgment, people are, some people are worthy of being cast out. Some people are worthy of being treated poorly or negatively because of things they've done. You know, I had a situation happen to me. This was a very difficult situation when I was in college. Uh, one particular year when I was in college, I was the RA for a group of students. It was about 40 students on a dorm room hall. Whoever doesn't know what an RA is, I was basically the designated parent. I was supposed to keep these students alive for the year. And there was one particular guy that was on the dorm. His name was James. And me and James were completely the polar opposite in almost every way. I am a 5'7 black man from Hartford, Connecticut. James was a six foot for white guy from North Carolina. But despite all of our differences, me and James were such good friends. We loved to joke together, we ate meals together, we played basketball together. He was somebody who I thought I would be able to call a friend for the rest of my life. But then there was a particular situation that happened this year, Halloween, uh, at, my, at the door, at, at our school. And let me say this as well. I grew up in a Pentecostal household. Many of you have heard me talk about that before. And because of that, I didn't celebrate Halloween, uh, but I didn't judge anybody that did. And there was a bunch of students that were getting ready to go to a Halloween party. And, and James uh, was going to be one of those people at the party. And, you know, I was like, hey, bro, do your thing. I'll see you later. But I noticed that when I went into my dorm room later that day after classes, that there was a bunch of my stuff missing. I was missing glasses, I was missing a sweater, I was missing a shirt, I was, I was missing shoes, I, I, was, I, I didn't know where they went. And then later on, people started knocking on my door saying, Stephen, you gotta come out here, man, you gotta see this. Then I walked out to look at what it is they wanted me to see, and it was James. And James thought it would be funny to dress up as me for Halloween in blackface. He darkened his face, his hands, and his legs, and he wore my clothes, stretched out my sweater, so he could be me for Halloween. And while everybody else on the dorm thought that was hilarious, I was enraged. I was enraged knowing that that specific action is considered a mockery to my people knowing that even though everybody else thought that this was humorous and innocent, this was something that was to the defamation of the black community. 
And the idea that James would do this and still consider me a friend was unacceptable. So I remember walking into my room, slamming the door. Everybody else didn't understand why I was upset. And I was thinking of the best way that I could get back at James. Because I was furious. I was angry to the point of tears even. And I was like, man, do I, do I call my other black friends and we confront this dude, maybe even beat him up? Do, we, do, do I just go back out and yell at him? Do I tear the clothes off of him? How do I make sure that I cancel James? And how do I make it clear that I never want to talk to him again because he is, in my eyes, a racist? And in that moment, I heard the voice of God speak to me and he said, Stephen, what would I do for you in this situation? Would I try to get you hurt? Would I blow up in your face angrily? Have I ever not treated you with kindness and love? And in my mind, I was like, God, this is different. This is not that. And he was like, how? Go talk to him. Tell him that you love him. Tell him why it is that he needs to be better. But do not cast him aside because that is what I've never done to you. So that's what I did. And Valley family, I'll be honest with you, I did that. And he didn't take it seriously. He thought I should be considering a compliment that I'd want to be him. He thought that if the intention was not to be racist, therefore it was not a racist act. But I still decided to love him. And again, the relationship was challenged, but I never stopped being his friend after that. And that's a difficult compromising thing. But four years later, I remember getting this text message from him and I wrote it down and I want to share it with you. He says this, hey, brother, I realized tonight that I think I owe you an apology. I realized tonight when you would when you spoke to me about the costume, I thought you were overreacting. I was very wrong then. I'm very sorry for my actions and attitude during that time. Thank you for not stopping to be my friend. Hope everything is going well for you, my man. Love you. Valley, I don't share that message with you today to make myself look like a hero because I'll be honest, there are many other moments in my life where I did not have that level of maturity. I don't share this message with you to let you think that anytime you're in a similar situation that there's gonna be a happily ever after at the end. I share this with you for this strict reason. What if the world saw more of that? How much different would the world be if we were able to truly love people despite their faults, despite their flaws, the way that Jesus did? That is being salt and light. That is making a difference and it's not easy. But man, it would be powerful. And the third and final thing that I believe that we should do is simple. 
It's to love our enemy. Jesus, later on in the Sermon on the Mount, says this, Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 43. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors, and by the way, people hated tax collectors back then, so they would have been very upset at the idea of comparison. But Jesus says, are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? We all know that we like what we like, right? That if someone has the same interests as us, sometimes if they have the same background, economic status, same race as us, that it's very easy to get along with those people and to enjoy those people. But also, many of us know what it's like to experience someone that we would consider an enemy. And I love this. This definition came from Pastor Judah Smith when looking at this. He said, Our de- the biblical definition for enemy is those who you have determined as an opponent. Those who are against your worldview. Those that, believe, those that you believe that if they had their way would affect your quality of life. And that could be as small as a sports team. It could be a boss. It could be a person on Facebook. It could be your spouse sometimes. It could be your children. It could also be another race. It could also be another religion. And, man, this is so difficult for me because I've had times in my life where I've had people that I thought were really cool and I won't even bring up certain issues around them because if I find out that they don't believe the things that I believe, then I feel like, oh, I don't know if I can be friends with you like that anymore. And it's so easy for people that we should love, people that we should care for to instantly become our enemy. This has just been a sermon of me confessing my faults and shortcomings today, and I just want to share another one. You know, recently, social media has just become such a place of anger and just bombs being thrown at one another, angry comments because everything around us is just being politicized. And there was one particular Christian leader that I'm friends with that was saying things on social media that I completely disagreed with. I'm not going to tell you the name. It's not any of your business. But either way, I was getting so angry with this individual that it was affecting my actual friendship with them in real life. And I remember even saying to my wife, how can this person call themselves a Christian? How can this person call themselves a Christian leader and say these things and believe these things? I want nothing to do with this person. But again, I have to reflect on this idea of in a situation like this, who is God listening to in my prayers? Meaning if this guy is praying against me and he's a Christian and I as a Christian am praying against him, whose side is God on? Does it bother me if God doesn't have a side in this issue? Does it bother me if God is more concerned on what's right and what's wrong compared to who's right and who's wrong? Jesus 
says this in his word, Ephesians 6, verse 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Our enemy is not physical, it's spiritual. It's, it's systems, it's, it's laws, it's, it's things of that nature, but it's never people. And what's so challenging about this verse in Matthew chapter 5 is that it says that we're supposed to love our enemy and pray for those that hurt us. Do you know why that's so difficult, especially the prayer part? Because prayer changes things. And I've had times in my life where I would pray for someone who I thought was an enemy and it changed my heart to no longer see them as my enemy. It made me start to see that person for their humanity. For the love of God that is on their life, the same way it's all mine. And I needed to repent. This world is filled so much with people that have no problem attacking one another. But what if we loved people the same way that Jesus did? Because Jesus did get angry at people. Jesus did rebuttal at wrong theology and thinking. But Jesus was for everybody. That much was very clear as well. That's what he's calling us to today. I'm out of time. But I just want to read for you this passage in scripture. Galatians 5, starting at verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law, a.k.a. none of these things are illegal. You can't get in trouble for being this way. My wife will never say, Stephen, you're being too loving. I need you to give me space. No one will ever say, hey, listen, you're being too gentle. You're showing too much self-control. You can't get in trouble for these things. But you can definitely make an impact in the lives of people for these things. Valley family, as I close, I want you to imagine what if for the rest of 2020, in the midst of so much unsure futures and political unrest, racial tension, we were known for this. We could make the world a better place. We can make someone's world a better place. But we can't do it without the point that I made so long ago. If the love of God is not reigning in us, we cannot pour it out to other people. So that's what I want to pray for. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Heavenly Father, you're so good, you're so kind, you're so gracious. Thank you for the love that you've shown us. A love with no partiality. A love that we never deserved. And Lord, we know that this world is in need of your love today. So God, we ask today that you give us the peace 
that we need in ourselves, that you give us the love that is lacking in our own lives and that you pour it in so much through the power of Holy Spirit that it causes for us to shift how we treat one another, how we see mistakes and, and patterns and habits that other people have, that we will be able to love our enemy in supernatural ways so that they may have salvation. Thank you for setting such a powerful example in Jesus' name. And if anybody in here says, you know what? I need to see this love. I need this value and, and significance that comes from Jesus. Can I just encourage you right now on the chat here in this room that Jesus wants to give you this free gift today? And you can receive it right now. Just pray these words after me. Dear Jesus, please come into my life. Thank you for the love that you've showed I receive this gift of love now. I choose to follow you today and forevermore. In Jesus' name, amen.